0: But many times through the years I've been fooled along that line. When given one's personal testimony, it's usually fit and proper to put first things first, so is this by peace history. I shall try to follow the ordinary procedure. I was born in the town of Dunmore, Pennsylvania, on May 5, 1914, so you may notice I'm not a foreigner. Sometimes this last name of mine has gotten me into comical situations. In many areas of the past where I've been, sometimes Roman Catholic priests, when they heard that I was coming in the air, when they heard that name or read that name, they said, oh, don't pay attention, that man is a foreigner from Italy. I'm not a foreigner from Italy. Dunmore, Pennsylvania is not in Italy. Then it begin with, you can't deduce what nationalities I represent from that last name, Lomolo. But you see, in reality, I'm three, six, Greek, two, six, French, and one, six, Italian. So you notice I'm all American. actually in the eyes of God it doesn't matter whether we're French Italian, Spanish, Portuguese or whether we're white, black, red or yellow, all that matters in the eyes of God is that we're saved sinners and if we're not in that classification, let's hope and pray that God will give us that privilege or give you that privilege of being in that classification of a saved sinner, in with and through Christ Jesus as a young child, as a young man, actually, we can still stick to the name. The first part of that name, Angelo in Greek and Italian, means angel. You may say a fat one at that, but still it means angel. <laughs> the second part of that name, Lavalle, is an Italianized form of the French, Lavalle, which is my correct name, and it was Italianized by my great grandfather. In that French name, there's two E's. The second last E's accented, according to French Grandma, there's two E's like that. The second last E's accented, and the last e is asterisk, it's not pronounced. Now, that's the way the Frenchmen admit it. You don't ask me why. But that's what they do. They just write the last E only for beauty's sake. And only the one E is pronounced la valet, the second last E. But I was antagonized by my great grandfather who had to move from Savoy, France, into Italy to take over a government job under Napoleon the And the third. later on, when Italy was united through the rebellion caused by Garibaldi of the south of Italy, then he lost the whole works in Italy. And he deserved to lose the whole works in Italy because being a Frenchman, he had no business being in Italy to begin with. But anyway, that was only water under the bridge. But anyway, the Italians had a tough time pronouncing his last name because according to the Italian grammar, they pronounce every vowel. So they used to pronounce the two E's. And when they did, it sounded like a really action business. Lovely, hey, so to make it easier for them, and he was thinking hard and them, he changed the name from Lovele to Loval. And it's been that way ever since. And in both languages, lovely and Lovali, mean the same thing. The Valley. So put my two names together it means Angel of the Valley. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes ministers, when they meet me for the first time in their life with some ministers, oh, they're an enthusiastic shake my hand and they quickly withdraw their hands, and I know why they're withdrawn a hesitated to pronounce my name. Some of them instead of calling me Lavolo, called me, me Diabolo. And Diabolo in Italian means devil. And I don't know what that But as a young child, as a young man, I was educated in the public, in the public schools of Dunmore, Pennsylvania. After my fourth year in high school, through competitive examination, I was awarded a full-paid scholarship to follow any particular profession that I wanted to follow up in life. But since I was undecided as to what vocation I wanted to follow up in life, I floundered my first two years of college work, which I spent at the University of Scranton, Pennsylvania, which was also a Catholic university. However, at the end of my second year, an announcement was made of all the classes at the university that a competitive examination was intended to be given by the Bishop of Scranton to give out 12 partially paid scholarships for those who wanted to study for the secular priesthood of the Scranton Diocese of Scranton, Pennsylvania. Two hundred of us had responded to the call and I was one of the twelve who was awarded a partial-paid scholarship to study for the secular priesthood at Scranton, Pennsylvania. So I was sent by the bishop of Scranton, 1934 to 36, to Saint Mary's University in Baltimore, Maryland, to specialize in the studies of philosophy. Then, in 1936, I, together with five others out of a group of 300 students, was awarded a four-year full theological, full-paid theological scholarship to study at the International Seminary in Genoa, Italy, called the Collegio Brindisi Don Negro. I hope you got it but anyway <laughs> it was there that we were initiating in the various studies of theology that is of dogmatic theology scriptural theology moral theology canonical theology homiletics apologetics rhetoric etc it was while studying there in the latter part of my third year all my fourth year that i had entertained serious grievous doubts on the so-called essential central teachings of the roman catholic church particularly those teachings which concerned itself with purgatory Papal infallibility, the immaculate conception of Mary, the bodily assumption of Mary, the question of the doctrine of good meritorious works, the doctrine of indulgences, the masses of propensatory sacrifice, and the apostolic powers, two apostolic powers of the priest, which were supposed to flow from this priestly character, which priestly character was stacked with the free soul, by the inquisition of laying of the hands of the bishop, on the heavenly character to the priesthood, at the time of ordination, and from this priestly character flowed, the apostolic power to transubstantiate in the Lord's Supper and to forgive and retain sins in the confessional box. Especially those last teachings about the priesthood that I seriously question. But even after the necessary answers were given by the required professors to purify these doubts from my mind and heart once and for all time, these doubts still persisted so much so that I went into the act of priesthood a guilty dance Now you may ask the logical question here, at this particular point, it doesn't offend me. Well, see, when you had entertained these doubts, you may say, why do you leave there by continuing in to the priesthood uh, as another done? Were you not considered a hypocrite? And the eyes of Roman church teaching? Not at all. But well, you got to understand that I was one of the first students that came under the teaching of their, of their uh, new Greek theology that crept into Roman Catholic seminaries in the mid-30s. And actually my stand was a revolt against this teaching. And this is what Roman Catholic people are reacting against today. <laughs> I reacted in those days in my student days. But anyway, I acted in the sense that I ended up only telling you what the scripture says. Tell me what the scripture says, not what men says. At that time, during my student days, there was taught. It was taught for me as a probable opinion in moral theology, which now today. Through Vatican Council too, they consider now as a common opinion. But in those days, it was merely a probable opinion, not a common opinion, but a probable opinion on the part of some theologians, where they stipulated that in their moral theology, that in some cases, that where there is involved a sincere Roman Catholic, he may truly entertain that sincere Roman Catholic a grave doubt on essential, very central Roman Catholic teaching. At the same time when he's entertaining a great doubt, this sincere Roman Catholic, he's doing everything in his power, in his ability, with prayer, meditation, seeking out the proper theological authority to purify and rid himself of these doubts once and for all the time. While he's doing all this necessary prayerful research and work in the eyes of the Roman Church, he is still considered a dutiful, obedient, and practicing child of the Roman Church. But once he comes to a fixed conclusion, as a result of his prayerful uh, work and meditation and research, even if that fixed conclusion is diametrically opposed to essential Roman Catholic Church teaching, then in conscience, he's bound to stand by his fixed conclusion and be responsible to God alone, even though automatically by canonical law he's cut off from the body of the Roman Church, but in the end, uh, he's not cut off from the mystical body of Christ. I prefer to follow and belong to the mystical body of Christ and be covered in the Roman Church, not believing essential Roman Church teaching. And still and only believe only scriptural teaching. And that was my case and a so solution of conscience. So I was ordained as a Delhi Tamilist priest at the College Chapel in on May 1814 by the auxiliary bishop of Germany by the name of Cassese, and returned to the United States of America <coughs> on June 10, 1908, and served eight years as a doubting time as priest. After being in the priesthood a few months, the stimulus was provided for me to eventually leave the Roman Catholic priesthood. What was it? My disbelief in the teaching of the Roman Church on its priesthood. Now, here's where I want the light for Yeah, that not That's obviously the best, Bill while there's a he's getting a blackboard, I can digress here a bit and give you an idea of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches on the question of the priesthood. Many people are not aware of the teaching of the Roman Church on the priesthood. I would say of all the teaching of the Roman Church, the most central teaching is its teaching on the priesthood. And before there can be union with the Roman Church, Protestant bodies, Protestant churches, Protestant people have to accept this central teaching of the Roman Church on its priesthood. Because without its priesthood, there's no Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that when a Roman Catholic male subject is being ordained into the Roman Catholic priesthood through what they call the Sacrament of Holy Orders, when the bishop is conferring this Sacrament of Holy Orders, during the ordination service, an all-important, meaningful service takes place. And that is, the bishop extends his hands on the head of the captain to the priesthood, and the Roman Church teaches that when this occurs, there comes from the bishop through his hands, and stands all over the priest's soul, a priestly, indestructible, eternal character, or seal, or mark. And because this priestly character, the priest's soul, the Roman Catholic Church says that a Roman Catholic priest automatically becomes, the other, an alter Christus, another Christ. Because this priestly character, the priest soul, the Roman Church says that a Roman Catholic priest from then on is to be essentially distinguished from the Roman Catholic layman, doctor, candlestick, baker. He is to be essentially distinguished from the Roman Protestant minister and Jewish rabbi. That part the Roman Catholic priest, because that priestly character of the soul belongs to a class all by themselves, sui so generis. They don't need the universal priesthood of believers, like you and I believe, in which there's no essential difference of kind as long as you become a saved sinner. There's no essential difference of kind between the minister and the layman. We're all saved sinners. We all equally belong to the universal Christian church. We all equally belong to the disciple of Christ. We all are equally members of the Royal Priesthood of Believers. But no, not with him. There's an essential distinction in kindness established between the priest and the Roman Catholic layman, doctor of minister, and Jewish rabbi. This teaching was repeated by the Vatican Council too in its decree on the priesthood and in the Constitution of the Church. Because of this priestly character the priest soul, the Roman Church says only the Roman Catholic priest of the Latin rite and the Greek and Russian Orthodox priests. And those priests that belong to the Polish National Catholic, Liberal Catholic, Old Catholic, and the Anglo-Catholic portion of the Episcopal Church, some of them would hold that, some theologians, because they belong within valid Episcopal, apostolic succession, and because they receive a priestly character on their soul, they're the only valid ordained ministers of God, all this who belong outside, the episcopal, apostolic succession, the Roman Church say, such as the Presbyterian, the Baptist, the Methodist, the Lutherans, the Seventy God, the Pentecostal, etc., belonging outside, the episcopal, apostolic succession, the Roman Church say, they're all invalidly ordained ministers of God. Now, what are we having today? Many ministers are running full tilt towards the Roman Church because the Roman Church is spotted at them, and yet they're not considered validly ordained ministers of God. Well, let's go on. Because this priestly character, the priest soul, the Roman Church says, that Roman Catholic priest, once he's ordained a Roman Catholic priest, is always a Roman Catholic priest. That priestly character stays with that priest, whether he stays in the priest or the priesthood, uh, he's supposed to be stuck with it for all eternity. And they're stuck, they can't take it away from him. Because of this priestly character, the Roman Church says, that Roman Catholic priest is supposed to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek for all eternity. Whether he goes to heaven, hell or purgatory, he goes as a Roman Catholic priest. Now, i left there you know, now, 23 years ago. Still, they consider me one of the priests because this priestly character is supposed to be stamped on my soul for all eternity. I don't believe it. I never felt it come in. that never felt go out. But they say, I'm still with it. Many times at my meetings, I have priests that come there to my meetings. Many times there, some mom's priests and mom's seniors down through the years. Many, some of them there would come forward and say, glad I know you follow the law. Tomorrow we'll see a mass and you come back to Mother Church. See, three years ago, I left going vacation time, so technically for them, I'm still on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> because this priestly character, the priest, soul, the local Catholic Church, said they're closed to priestly apostolic power. Now, here we come to the lead of their teaching. comes from this priestly character, the priest, the apostolic power, first to transubstantiate in the Lord's Supper. That is, when the priest says over the bread in the Lord's Supper, this is my body. That comes from this priestly character, the apostolic power to change the substance bread into the substance of the body, into the substance of the blood, into the substance of the soul, and the substance of the deity Christ. And do the same thing with the wine. for the priest says, This is my blood over the wine, that comes from this priestly character, the apostolic power to change the substance bread, wine, into the substance of the blood, into the substance of the body, into the substance of the soul, and the substance of the deity Christ, and offer both transubstantiated species, not as mere symbols only, not as mere figures only, but as the actual replay, the actual redoing, the actual representing, the actual renewing, here and now, in a bloodless way, on Roman Catholic orders, the past passion and death and victory of Christ on Calvary's cross, to be offered to God of honor as a propitiatory sacrifice, that is, to again make atonement before God of honor for the sins of mankind, for the punishment of the sins, and to deliver souls from purgatory. How many know that this is the teaching of the Roman Church? Put up your hand. How many know it now? Put up your hand. This is the teaching they're hiding away. This is the teaching about the priesthood. The second priestly apostolic power that flows from this priestly character is the priestly apostolic power either to forgive or not to forgive sins in the confessional box, wherein the priest sits, has a judge either to forgive or not to forgive sin. And in the formula of absolution that the priest recites, there's an important reference and statement made in reference to that priestly apostolic power that from his priestly character. And the Latin is the Dominus nostri Jesus Christus te Zobo, of the is a the Now here's the English translation. May our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ absolve you. And I, through his authority, absolve you from all sense of excommunication, suspension, and energy, inasmuch as I am in power. Here it is, the word, equantum posum. This is the Latin. In quantum posum. How many have studied Latin? Okay. Oh, don't be bashful. Just put up a little higher. <laughs> All right, posse. Remember, posse. The verb to be able. All right. In as much. In as much. As I am empowered. Or in as much as I have the power. Right there, a reference made to the power the priest has coming from his priestly character, either to forgive or not to be his sins confessed to the priest in the confessional box. This is the teaching that I seriously question. Now, you might say, well, now how did you how did you work your way out of this problem, this going on the question of the priesthood? Well, first I tackled the very scriptural text that they use to try to prove first the priestly character business, and then we went to the other famous text, which I forgot to read, pardon me, uh, the text there from John, which I should have opened there my discourse with, but we'll do that later. Let's first go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. This is the text that they try to use to prove that uh, Paul indirectly is referred to the priestly character of the Roman church priests. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Once I went to these scriptural texts and found out that either they were misinterpreted, mistranslated, and thus they have ended up with the wrong teaching, I had to make a decision, and that was to really seriously study the scriptures and only the scriptures, and find out what Christ wanted me to believe. And ground myself only on that basis, on that word, and come to a fixed conclusion on Christ and Christ as only my Savior. But anyway, let's go on. Second Timothy chapter one reads thusly, verse six: For this reason, I admonish thee to stir up the grace of God which is in thee by the laying out of my hands. Now, this is the way this Roman Catholic Bible here reads. This is the Archconfraternity edition of the Roman Catholic Bible. I always use the Roman Catholic Bible in my work. Because when comparing the two Bibles, the Protestant Roman Catholic Bible, substantially they're the same. But be careful regarding the uh, Old Testament because there put, the Roman Church puts the apocryphal Greek histories in there, seven books that don't belong there. It was the Council of Trent in the 16th century that added these books to the Roman Catholic Bible, but before that time they did not have it. But anyway, let's go on. Now, what the Roman Catholic Church allows its dogmaticians to do is only use those words that's necessary to fill up the Roman Catholic teaching about the priesthood. And what do they do? They latch upon the phraseology only, and they argue this way. When Paul said to Timothy, the grace of God which is in thee by the laying on of my hands, all he was doing here, Paul, is referring indirectly to the priestly character that sat on the priest's soul by the laying on of the hands of the Roman Catholic bishop at the time of ordination. In other words, what they're trying to say, that the grace of God, of Paul, and the priestly character of the Roman Church are one and the same thing here. Are they? Now, in order to arrive at the, at the fixed definition of terms here, we've got to do what Roman Catholic popes, beginning with Pope Pius XII, has recommended Roman Catholic theologians to do ever since 1943, through the Encyclical Divina Flatu. Pope Pius XII was a very well-educated man. He was a scholarly man, but he was also a theologian of the Roman Catholic stamp. Pius XII was well aware that the Latin Vulgate, which is the only authentic text of the Bible for the Roman Church to use in theological works, in debates, in sermons, he knew that that Bible, the Latin Vulgate, which was a Latin translation made by Jerome way back and down through the century, has suffered corruption that different copyists, human translators and uh, human copyists, tampered with the Latin Vulgate of Jerome. Many Roman Catholic people don't know this. Down through the century, from the fourth century on, down through the centuries, after centuries, some of these copies began to change some of those words around. <laughs> and so injecting injected their own ideas. It got so bad that Pope Sixtus V, in the 16th century, tried to correct the Latin Vulgate of Jerome. And he said that he came upon over 2,500 erroneous renditions of the Latin Vulgate of Jerome. Pope Clement VII succeeded Pope Sixtus V, and he corrected 3,000 more er erroneous translations. Just imagine, over 5,000 corrupted renditions have appeared in the Latin Vulgate of Jerome from the time of Jerome the 4th century to the 16th century. And Pius de was well aware that there were still in the Latin Vulgate of Jerome erroneous renditions of the Word of God. And that's why he urged Roman Catholic scriptural scholars, don't be satisfied with the Latin Vulgate. Don't stick by the Latin book, alone. Go to the original sources. Go to the original scriptures. Go to the copies of the original scriptures the Alexandrian version, the Body B, the Sinatogy. And find out what was the real word, the original word used by the inspired human writer, like Paul. Find out what was the precise shade of meaning behind that word. Let's do that. Let's go to the original text of Paul. Paul wrote here in the Greek language. And in the original Greek text, we find that the word for grace of God used by Paul is charisma. Charisma. Now, you've probably seen a lot of the English word being used there in the past few years. Charismatic. Charismatic. That word charismatic comes from the root word in Greek, charisma, which was used by Paul in this instance, 2 Timothy. Now, charisma translates from the Greek into English, either grace of God or favor of God. Either grace of God or favor of God. But never, according to philology, which is the study of words, never in the history of the word, for the first 300 years, never in the history of the word charisma, did it convey the mean priestly character, which the Roman church has never been able to prove. Never did it have the meaning, priestly character. The expression priestly character in Greek would take two words. Character of a priest, character. Our English word character comes home entire from the Greek word character, character. It's written the same way in English and in Greek. Character of the priest. It's in the genitive case, I, e r o s i s. That's the word that means of the priest. Caritas. Now, Paul meant priestly character. He would have used the expression, two words, Kariter and for priestly character, but he didn't. He did not use caritas, priestly character. He merely used the word charisma, and charisma translates either grace of God or favor of God, and not priestly character. So they don't have any scriptural vision for a priestly character. Now, we come to the next important text, and that is John 20. Uh, let's read from verse 19 to 23 as it started. Now, this is the famous text that they try to use, uh, try to prove that the priest had the power to be repainted sins, which it is true, not the Episcopal apostolic succession, from the, from the apostles, begin with Peter, who got that power for the first time on the day of the Resurrection, when Christ appeared in the upper Chamber and addressed the all-important words to to the Apostles in verse 23, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. When Christ said these words for the first time, then and there, the Apostles, begin with Peter, Got flown for the first time from the priestly character, the priestly apostolic power, either to forgive with of sin, and this power was to be handed down to the bishop of Rome as the successor of Peter, and through the episcopal apostolic succession is supposed to go through the bishop, from the bishop, from the priestly character, the priest, to the sinner in the confessional box. That's the way that forgiveness of sin is titled. How many knew this? Put up your hand. How many know now? Put up your hand. Good. Well, now let's read this text. Let's find did Christ address these words to the apostles and the apostles alone. The Roman church says yes. That Christ on this day of the resurrection addressed these words to the apostles and the apostles alone. Alright, then let's see if the Roman church teaching is there. Does it say that they got then and there the power to begin retained sins for the first time? The power to retain, to forgive and retain sins committed after baptism. Sins committed after baptism. Did they get this power to begin retained sins committed after baptism? Let's see if it's there. Does it say there that they were supposed to hand down this power to give everything sins committed after the baptism to the Pope bro, And then from the Pope to Fiscal apostolic succession to the priest, and from the priestly character of the priest to the sin, the confession box. Let's see if all this is there. Let's begin with verse 19. Now, when it was late that same day, John 20, verse 19. When it was late that same day, the first of the week, the doors where the disciples to have been closed to fear the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you. When he had said this, he showed his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced at the Son of the Lord. He therefore said to them again, Peace be to you. As the Father had sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed upon them. What did he do? He breathed upon them. He went this way. And I do this for a reason because many people have never seen the connection there elsewhere. He breathed upon them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you shall forgive, ye are forgiven them. Whose sins you shall redeem, ye are redeemed." Let's stop there. Have you heard me read the word apostle even once? There are is that Christ addressed these words to the default apostle and alone. Yet the word apostle doesn't even appear once here in the Roman Catholic Bible. In verse 19 and 20, you read the word disciples, plural, not apostles. The word of the disciple and apostle are two different words. They spell differently and have two different meanings. The term is highly restricted. According to her calculation, the term apostle is restricted only to 15 men. The original twelve apostles: Paul, Matthias, and Barnabas, and to no one else. Never is the word apostle according to the Roman Church used in reference to one single woman. Saint John could not use, could not have used the word apostle there, because there were women present in the upper chamber that day. Was a Mary Madeline present? Verse 18 confirms that Mary Madeline came and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, Of these things he said to me. She was there. So St. John could not have written the word Apostle here and be the only one's present because among the people present are also other men and women. And for the other I thought. the apostles were not the only one's present in particular that day. Even it's true as the Roman Church say that when Christ said these words he did on there and gave the Apostle all the Apostle power, They can retain sin, and where did St. Thomas get his power? He wasn't there that day. Verse 24 confirms that. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And where did he get his power? I asked my professor of dogmatic theology on that very question. Professor, an apostle is one who's personally chosen by Christ. That's right. Never secondhand, but personally by Christ. That's right. And if he's personally chosen by Christ, then he must receive all powers personally from Christ. That's right. Well then, if he's got to receive Paul powers personally by from Christ, and word the same Thomas as the to get it, he wasn't there the first week. Ah, but he was present the second week. Ah, but he says Christ didn't repeat those words. Receive the Holy Spirit for the benefit of Thomas, who was absent the first week. Yeah. <laughs> ah, but the church says, I'm not even just what the church says. I want to know what Scripture says. <laughs> How did the Roman Church say that apostolic tradition teaches that Thomas got that power the second week when Christ appeared the second time? And a lot of you are not ready to accept this kind you get up and get out. Well, I wasn't ready to get up and get out on the smear say so. I want to prove And he put it in. If it is true, as the Roman Catholic Church says, that when Christ said these words, he gave the false, in order to default the that he retain sins through these words, then where did the Matthias get his power? He was an apostle. Matthias was not present here in the upper chambers of an apostle that day of the resurrection. He was not yet made an apostle. He was made an apostle after the resurrection, after the ascension of Christ. And where did he get his power? Now, St. Paul was an apostle. He was the greatest of them all. St. Paul was not present in the upper chambers of an apostle. He was an enemy of the Christians after Christ resurrected and ascended to heaven. Paul was made an apostle after the resurrection, after the ascension of Christ. On his way to Damascus, he was made an Apostle, then where did he get his power to you would say, The Roman Church cannot give you a definite answer. Now the Roman Church maintains Barnabas was an Apostle. If Barnabas was an Apostle, then where did he worded, get his power? He was not present in the upper chamber on the day of the resurrection of the Apostle. He was made an Apostle after the Resurrection, after the Ascension of Christ, after Paul was made an Apostle, whose companion he was. And then we come to the important passage. Which they translate this way in the English, Roman Catholic, New Arians, Archbishop Kennedy edition of the Bible. Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you shall forgive. They are forgiven them. You shall retain. They are retained. Now you notice, they put the verbs in the first part of the relative clause. Shall forgive, shall retain. They put the verb in the future tense. In the original Greek text of John, the verbs are not in the future tense at all. Since you have a relative clause here, you have what they call an indefinite relative clause. Indefinite relative clause which takes what? The presence of junctive. The verbs in the original Greek text of John are in the presence of junctive. Then it's conditional. Yes, and you can translate it, shall, but you've got to specify it. It's a conditional relative clause, subjunctive, and it may may be translated correctly, whose sins you may forgive, rather than shall, but you can use shall. But the correct translation is, whose sins you may forgive, whose sins you may retain. You can correct it. Since it's conditional and dependent on the future, uh, something, it can be contract, correctly translated also shall. In other who sends you may forgive, who sends you may retain. They put the verb in the second clause in the present passive tense. In the present tense passive voice. Present tense passive voice. Yet in the original Greek of John, the verbs find themselves in the perfect tense, in the perfect tense passive voice. And the translates have been forgiven, have been retained. What has happened? Some Roman Catholic copyists, they don't know who did it, anywhere from the 8th to the 13th century, century—they deliberately tampered with the Latin Vulgate of Jerome, why? It was during that time in the history of the Roman Church that their teaching about a special priesthood was in the process of being developed and it was finalized by St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century into a fixed theological thesis. So, when he came to a fixed theological conclusion or thesis or theory, they had to find some scriptural base upon which to ground their teaching about priests having the power to irritate sins coming from a priestly character. And to do that, they had to get at this scriptural text and twist it around the verse. So, the way they twisted it around, they want you to believe that when Christ said the words, the way they structured them, whose sins you shall forgive, the all forgive them. Then and there, he gave he the apostles the power that he sins committed after baptism on the day of the resurrection, and which stood hands down through Bible Epistle Apostolic Succession. But yet when Christ said those words, as he originally struck them, whose sins you may forgive, they have been forgiven them. Whose sins you may retain, they have been retained. What is he doing here? He's not referring to an immediate past action and connection with the apostles having a power to be retained sins for the first time. No. All that Christ is doing here has originally structured whose sins you may forgive, they have been forgiven them. He's really re- referred to as remote, <coughs> past completed action. His passion and death on Calvary's cross have been the sole merit to his cause whereby sins have been forgiven and have been retained. And that's something else entirely, isn't it? But well, Christ wants those people in the upper chamber, all those men and women, the first saved sinners who comprise collectively the universal Christian church, who collectively represented the discipleship, who collectively represented the universal priesthood of believers, who collectively represented the royal priesthood of believers of St. Peter's. He wants all those people in the upper chamber to understand once and for all time that divine judgment has already been rendered for all the sins and punishment of the sins of all mankind by his passion and death on Calvary's cross. And the future forgiveness and non-forgiveness of sins depends on the future repentance, faith and non-repentant faith of the sinner and the future. And there's nothing for man to add. And that's how the apostles and the disciples understood this from the day, not the resurrection, but from the day of Pentecost on, they put it into practice. Because there in Acts uh, 13, I think it is, 12, 38, through him the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, that is, declared to you. Declared, announced, preach to you. And what does Luke say? He has the same thing, saying, Luke. And thou repentance and the remission of sins should be preached in his name, beginning from Jerusalem. Preaching his name to all nations, beginning even at Jerusalem. The important item is the remission of sins should be preached, that is, announced, declared in his name, in Christ's name, to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So then the important item that we've got to understand is this whose sins you may declare. The key word is declare here. For who sins you may declare, forgive In the name of Christ. To repentant sinners, they are, they have been forgiven them, that is, by Christ's <coughs> high and death on Calvary's cross. Whose sins you may declare retained. Declare retained. In the name of Christ. To unrepentant, unrepentant sinners. They have been retained. That is by the passion and death of Christ on Calvary's cross. And there you have it. Whose sins you may declare forgiven in the name of Christ to repentant sinners, they have been forgiven them already by Christ on Calvary's cross. Whose sins you may declare retained in the name of Christ to unrepentant sinners, they have already been retained by Christ on Calvary's cross. And that's it. Now when I came to a fixed conclusion on this particular question, I resolved in and there, never to go to confession to any Roman Catholic priest. As long as I remain a priesthood, and that's precisely what I did. For the eight years that I was a priest in America, I never went to confess my sins to any Roman Catholic priest. So I was a heretic right off of the bat. Now then you might say, Well, now do you mean to tell me to mean tell us that they did not receive the Holy Spirit on the day of the resurrection? You say, Well, the word there is received, that's a key word there. There finds itself the word in the imperative mood. That's true. The word there in the English Translation finds itself there, received there, the Holy Spirit see finds itself in the imperative mood. But the sad fact of the matter is that the scriptures, original scriptures, were not written in the English language. It was written originally there in this section there in the Greek, and in the Greek we have there the word. La bete. And la finds itself not only in the imperative, but also finds itself as a secondarist, Active. Second Aorist text, active. And when the second Aorist in pair is used like the Aorist subjunctive and the present subjunctive, it does not denote a point action, an action that will take place here, now, merely on this very day of the resurrection. It denotes an action that's futuristic, that will happen sometime in the future. Took me twenty ten 10 years to get this. Syntax and Moods and Tenses of the Greek Verb by William Watson Goodwin, Doctor of Letters. He's considered the most, foremost Greek scholar that ever lived. Published by Ginn and Company, Boston, 1893. Quote The present and heiress subjunctive an and to as and artist, the heiress and Paradise, are always future, except in general conditions. Example, Dote Mototo. Give me this, pages 23 24. So when Christ says, La Fete. It is they receive here now on this very day of the resurrection the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. May you receive the Holy Spirit not here now, but 49 days from now on the day of Pentecost. May you receive the Holy Spirit, and that's when they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there took place something there on that day of the Pentecost to prove that Christ was speaking here in figure. He was promising, re-promising, the Holy Spirit to be sent by God the Father in His name. Let's go to Second Acts of the Apostle, and there we find something that confirms that our interpretation is uh, true. Acts 2, in the very first, let's start with the first sentence to prove our point. First sentence, And when the days of Pentecost were drawn to a close, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a violent wind blowing. Remember Christ on the day of the resurrection, he breathed upon them. What does this breathing the Christ refer to? It referred to 49 days from now to the violent wind that would accompany the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. That breathing of Christ was a figure of speech on the day of the resurrection. That would point to something that would happen 49 days from now on the day of Pentecost. That the Holy Spirit would descend upon the disciples accompanied by a violent wind blowing. How many have connected these two incidents before? How many see it now for the first time? Put up uh, there. Good. So that meant that he was merely re-promising the same for the Father. From the Father, the Holy Spirit. And that's when they got the holy spirit was on the day of pentecost not on the day of the resurrection and paul peter whom in the roman catholic church makes their first book confirms this and when he got up to speak there remember on the day of the resurrection on the day of pentecost what does he say in verse 32 what does he say this jesus god has raised up and we all are witnesses of it therefore exalted by the right hand of god and received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit, yes, forth this spirit, would you see it here? Even St. Peter, whom they make their first hope testify, that he got the Holy Spirit here on the day of Pentecost, not on the day of the resurrection. But they never referred to this verse because it's against it. But all important, what Peter did there when he was indwe- indwelled, in, uh, indwelled with the Holy Spirit in that day, infilled there with the Holy Spirit, what did he do? He preached. He got up to preach. What? He preached the good news, the gospel record about Jesus Christ. And that gospel record proved to be, for those present, for many, for 3,000 at least, the power of God unto salvation. Verse 37, we have this. They came under the conviction. They personally accepted their Christ as their Savior. Now, on hearing this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, in their rusty the apostles, Brendan, what shall we do? Now, here here's where he should have come in. From, from a Roman church. He's an all right boy. Since you personally accept Christ as your personal Savior and divine forgiver of sins, then the next best thing you've got to do then is confess your sins into our ears so that you may be absolved through power to the humotant sins of close priestly character for the first time for the benefit of mankind. So kindly line up quietly one by one, please and come you down beside us and confess your sins into our ears so that we may pronounce the formula of absolution over you in virtue of this power that we can retain sins that upholds from our priestly character for the first time on this day in Pentecost. Did he say that? No, he did not. But he did say something else, though, and puts in a nutshell what is necessary to become a saved sinner. But Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for to you is the promise unto your children, and to all who are far off, even to all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 41. Now they who received his word were baptized, and there were out of that day about two thousand souls. Well, where is this sacrament of penance that they talk about? Where is this power to be everyday sins that they teach? It's not here at all. But Paul, Peter, does put in a nutshell four things that are necessary to become a safe sinner. First, personally accept Christ as your personal Savior personally except to fit Christ as your personal Savior and divine forgiver of sin repent methanoia Metanoia involves two actions confess your sins to Christ alone because Christ alone died personally on Calvary's cross for your sins and the punishment of your sins now once you confess your sins to Christ alone then have the firm resolution in your whole mind heart in your whole being of a being a, being spiritually changed, turn away completely, make a complete circle, completely, completely turn away from the flesh, the world, of the devil, and sin, and turn around towards Christ. And from here on until death, love, honor, adore. Trust Christ alone as your personal Savior. Trust Christ alone as your personal Redeemer. Christ alone as your divine forgiver of sins. And to prove of that I have a truly repentant faith, be doth die And yes, partly, you too shall receive the special indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's what he preached that day. How to become a Satan. Well, when I came to this fixed conclusion there that the Roman Church teaching was not even proved by the Roman Catholic Churches. About the priest having special power to be given sin. I resolved, as I said before, then and there never to go to confess to any Roman Catholic priest, which I, uh, which I did not do. And, uh, But the all-writing question that I have to satisfy with my own conscience and conviction is that, all right, since the priest does not have a priestly character nor a power to be given retained sin, then to whom do I go to confess my sins and why? Does the Roman Catholic Bible answer that question? Yes, it does. I eventually found the answer. To that question. To whom do I go to confess my sins and why? And it's found in verse 9 of the first chapter of the first letter of St. John, where it reads in the Roman Catholic Bible, if we acknowledge our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all iniquity. Now, to whom do the third singular pronoun he refer to in this sentence? Does it refer to a pope, bishop, or priest, or even a minister? No, it does not. St. John never heard of the came after his time. Well, about who was St. John writing in this letter? Who's the subject of this letter? In verse 7 of that first chapter, first letter of John, what does he say? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Then that he, in verse 9, is Christ Jesus. Then the obvious sense is, If we acknowledge our sins to Christ, he, Christ, whose blood cleanses us from all sins, is faithful and just to the here our sins. Well, I prefer to follow St. John, who is inspired by God the Holy Spirit, taught me to whom to go to confess my sins, Christ. Why? Because Christ, whose blood cleanses us from all sin, is faithful and just to the here our sins. And I take him at his word. Christ is not only man, but also God. And when St. John, under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, tells me that he is faithful and just, Christ, who is not only man, but also God, I believe it wholeheartedly with my heart that he is truly faithful and just to forgive me my sins. Because if I didn't take him at his word, then I would be making God a liar. God is a liar. He is truly faithful and just. And take him at his word. And i have the positive assurance that i'm perfectly forgiven my sins by christ my perfect savior who died on cross the calvary's cross a perfect passion and death, to obtain for me the perfect produce of sins from god the father which is personally implied to me by god the holy spirit and from that time on when i made this act of profession of faith in Christ in my city, when I broke with the Roman Church openly the first time, yes, I had also perfect peace, not only with myself, but with my God. But it was not enough for me to leave the Roman Church when I came to this first conclusion. I thought it best to also oh. examine the other questions which covered me. And after careful, diligent restudy of other questions about seven and a half more years, I found myself an impasse. Six and a half more years rather, I found myself on end I would in 1948. Either remain the Roman Catholic Church and preach it and be to live the life of a hypocrite or get up and make a stand for Christ and his church and his teaching as follow the scriptures. I chose the latter course. In the meantime, I heard about Christ's mission through the magazine that was sent as a sample copy to all the priests of my diocese. I got in contact with the mission. I told them it was an organization much to my liking. I offered them my services, quickly accepted, and we worked out the offices officers of Christ's mission ever since 1948. The very first night that I found myself in the aloneness and quietness of my room, the very first night that I spoke publicly openly with the Roman Catholic Church, and when I found myself in the aloneness and quietness of my room, as I said before, I fell down on my knees and prayed to God the Father way I wanted him to understand that I was exceedingly sorry for the great for the great sins that I had committed. And above all, I was exceedingly sorry for the great hurt and harm and bleeding that I caused his Son, Christ Jesus, to suffer on Calvary's cross personally for my sins and all the punishment of his sins. But in my own little way, under the guidance and grace and power of the Holy Spirit, I wanted through faith to accept Christ and Christ alone as my personal Savior and divine forgiver of sins. And to me, show there that I meant business, that I was willing to die for this faith in Christ as my personal Savior and divine forgiver of sins. And as long as there was life in my body, I prayed that He would send forth His Holy Spirit with the necessary grace and power to enable me to go forth and preach the of redemptive gospel of the forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ, and thus be able to establish the kingdom of God, which is nothing but the presence of Christ, not only all over the world, but in the hearts of human beings. You know, as I prayed thusly, I felt as though the change that once bound me to Romanism completely fell away, and they came into my mind and heart at peace and understanding that I had never experienced before. To give an illustration part of that time, because of the many doubts and troubles there that I had suffered over the, uh, the different doubts that I had entertained about Roman Catholicism, if I had gotten two hours of sleep in 24 hours for the eight years I was in the priesthood, I would have been doing good. That night, after I prayed thusly and had that first experience of a perfect peace and understanding with myself and with God, I went to sleep at 11 o'clock that night. And I had to be forcibly awakened the next afternoon at three o'clock. That's how peacefully I slept for the rest of my at eight years. Yes, my dear friend, that time on, when I had that experience, that perfect peace and understanding, not only with myself but with my God, I feared no man. That time on, I feared no misadventure, not even death itself. On June twenty-second, nineteen sixty-five, death almost struck me down completely. I came down with a massive coronary, the way the Jewish cardiologist called it, it was a massive myocardial infarction. One hour after I had been in the hospital, the Jewish cardiologist called my wife aside and told her, he said, My dear woman, he said, after looking at the x-rays of your husband's heart, he says I must inform you, he says, he has a fatal heart attack. He's got to cut the size of a 50 cent piece right on the top of his heart, where the big artery connects with the heart. There's a cut there the side of a 50 cent piece, and from that break, from that cut, there's blood constantly flowing out. He says he will hemorrhage to death within eight hours. He's got a fatal heart attack. So the only way we could stop that bleeding is go in there, cut that chest open, and sew up that heart. He says, we couldn't even get to the heart in time. He would die of the night. So please, be a good actor. Should you return back to his bedroom? Timely, do not cry. Because, should you cry, and should he see your tears, he might become emotionally upset and he would die sooner than the eight hours we did him to live. So, please be a good actress and don't cry. Well, my dear friends, God didn't handle my kids. I remained in, in the ten, five days and five nights struggling with my breath. <clears throat> On the sixth day, I sensed that God was healing me. Matter of fact, I was taken out of the intensive care unit and placed another part of the hospital, which was for non-intensive care patients. Nine o'clock that morning, the Jewish cardiologist came to visit me. He entered the room, approached my bed, afterwards sat at the edge of my bed and stared at me. After staring at me for a while, he began talking. He said, man, he started smiling. Well, I'm glad to see you alive today. Six days ago, he said, I wouldn't have given you a plug of your chance of survival. He says, "Not man." He said, "I want you to understand." He says, "I'm a reformed Jew, not an Orthodox Jew." But even as a reformed Jew, he says, "I believe in God. I believe in God." He says, "I believe that God can work miracles." He did so in the past. So, can He do today? And He did it in your case. You have only one chance out on of a thousand of surviving. Medical, he says, "I didn't do anything to save you." He says somebody upstairs loves you. He wants you to live. This is one case I will write down in my medical case history to be a